Well, good morning. That was a little bit longer than anticipated, so jostle some notes around and make it work. Uh, my name is Garrett Zafke. I am a member of Restoration as well as a guest speaker from time to time. Um, I keep getting invited back, so I must be doing something right, so that's good to see. Um, I am a communicator at heart and a communicator by profession, so that's basically just short talk for I like to talk. Um, so I want to just point out really quick, my claim to fame is that I've been able to give sermons um, for about 45 minutes on a cocktail napkin. I have three full pages, so if anyone wants to give like a little prayer silently of like, God, make this work in 30 minutes, we'll go from there. But let's see what we can whip up. I have a really um, fun sermon for you guys today um, as well. So first off, let me introduce what we're talking about today. Um, we've been talking about relationships. That's been our theme that we've been going with throughout um, our last couple of weeks. And when Rob talked to me about relationships, I, or slips, I'm going to slip on that a lot probably. <laughs> uh, but when Rob came to me on this, I was like, you know what? We, I'm perfect for this theme. Um, in no way am I a pro at relationships at all. Um, there are definitely some things in my marriage that um, we look back and we laugh at, of like, wow, that was insane, or that was probably a bad move. Um, so in no way am I a pro, and I don't want you to see me as that. Um, but I think there's always little nice nuggets of truth that all of us would have within our relationships that we can talk about um, and use. And today we're going to look in the Bible to have a couple that we can look at, um, namely from uh, disciples of Jesus and people who talk to Jesus, to show that it's common, that we all have things within our relationships that um, can mess up a relationship, really hurt a relationship, and what can we do to get past that? Um, it's one of those things that we know that they're going to happen, um, and instead of living in that kind of that downward sense of, you know, there's no way to get around this, there's nothing you can do, it's uh, they're going to happen, but then what can we do to move forward, and how can we really claim these for Jesus to make our lives better and make other people's lives better? So to open this up this morning, just by a show of hands, how many of you have been following the Olympics? Might be some, all right, fairly good number. Um, I haven't really watched them at all. Um, I always just keep track of them online, though, or through the radio um, to see how you know, everyone's doing, and it's somewhat interesting. Bobsledding, I feel like, is an interesting one for me to watch. Um, other than that, I don't watch too much. So hockey, I do watch as well a little bit and follow. Um, but it's just really cool to hear all like, the inspirational stories that come from that. Um, if you think about it, these are people who are at their peak performance, right? They've been training for years. This is their time to shine. So you'd think that there would be just this air of professionalism and just this confidence within that of, you know, I got this. I'm going to compete to the best of my ability. Um, but that's not always the case. If you've been following uh, women's figure skating, this year for the United States was not a good year. Um, it's been a tough year. For that, um, but understandably, if you think about it, figure skating is a really tough sport. Um, I'm not a figure skater, so really I'm not really going off of any kind of experience to say that, but from what I read and from what I watch, I think it's a really tough sport, um, if you think about it. And I want to read to you guys a little bit. I have an article from Sports Illustrated that I thought kind of does a good makeup of um, how the skaters feel within the moment when they're competing. Um, so here we go. It always happens at the Olympics. First, the figure skaters fall, and then the tears do. Makeup and glamorous outfits are the sports disguise. The Olympic individual free skate is one of the most tension-filled events in sports. It's like the back nine on Sunday at the Masters, which I don't play golf or watch golf either, so I'm not sure how true that statement is. So if you do play golf, no. For me, I'm like, eh, I think I'd make figure skating a little bit more competitive. But once again, that's my bias. I'm not sure. 
The athletes are there all alone with no teammates, teammates, just thoughts and demons in a sport that requires extreme precision under pressure. Karen Chen of the U.S. fell and said, I am extremely disappointed. I'm not going to lie. I trained myself to skate better than that. She ended her media interviews in tears. Gabrielle Delman of Canada was an emotional wreck as she talked about the nausea that built up inside her two minutes before her skate. She could not hold back tears as she said, there was nothing in the program I felt good about. I felt bad about dragging my dad and my brother all the way from Canada. And this article will go on a little bit. Um, this guy obviously is not a skater himself, and he kind of badmouths the players as they could have done better. And I feel like a lot of us always sit there, like we're like, they were the couch you know, coach or the couch quarterback sitting there and being like, ah, I could do better than that. Um, I'm just as guilty for this. Uh, I definitely bemoaned Blair Walsh a couple years ago when he missed his really big kick that really would have set us on a path maybe to the Super Bowl. Um, I was at the game freezing and almost dying, so understandably I'd be a little bit more upset, but I was definitely one of those people who was just bemoaning that. I can't believe he missed that kick. There's no way you can miss that kick. Um, but it happens, right? We make mistakes. Um, and we hope that people give us an air of grace. But I feel like in sports, it really shows that there isn't always that grace that is given to us. Even at your peak professional moment in life when you know, the people who are probably bad-mouthing you could never do what you do, there's still that air of, well, you could have done better. And we see that within how our, these figure skaters talked about after the performance of, I'm so ashamed. You know, I can't believe I brought my family here. Like, and I feel like their family would be like, we loved it. Like, we want to celebrate that with you. And the reason why we see this is because of insecurity. These athletes are going through, even though they are really good at what they do, they've been training for years and years, you know, there's insecurity that can creep in on that. Um, we even see that when um, they talk about before they compete. There's always this anxiety. There's this fear that they're not going to live up to what people want them to do. Um, even today, this morning, as I stand up here, there's always a little bit of insecurity and anxiety that I have up here. Uh, I hope I say everything correctly and eloquently, and everyone's like, oh, that was really good. Um, but you know, it's not the point. It's not really what matters. Um, but there's always that little bit of insecurity that can creep in. So we're going to talk about insecurity today. I know this is going to be a kind of an uncomfortable subject for a lot of us because we don't like to talk about our insecurities. That's As a Minnesotan, it's one of those things that you just bury underneath a lot of other emotions and you don't deal with it. Um, but we want to bring that up. We want to talk about that because God can um, bring good into that and God can bring peace to our insecurities. Because whether we like it or not, that's something that we all struggle with. I don't think there's anyone who's ever walked this world that has not had insecurities. And I feel like for us as Americans, our culture is really good about showing us our insecurities. Because it's a great gimmick to market things to us. I think about cosmetics, I think about clothing, I think about you know, cars, you name it. There's always something that people can you know, put an insecurity on and sell more stuff. If you want to be more beautiful, wear makeup. If you want to be more successful, drive a car. Um, it's really easy to market that, and I think marketers understand that, and they use that against us. And we get those messages bombarded to us every single day. And so we need to learn how to live in truth. And so today we're going to walk into that, and I'm going to show you what can we actually do um, to take that truth if we don't have it yet, or sometimes we need to brush it off and remind ourselves of the truth that we do know. Um, but insecurities derive from how we view ourselves. It can affect us on a personal level all the way up to how we interact and view people, people in our day-to-day -day interactions. It causes us to create relationships, slips in our lives. <laughs> oh, that's a difficult word, I guess, for me to say. 
First off, what is an insecurity? So the dictionary says it's an uncertainty or an anxiety about oneself, a lack of confidence. I can't tell you how I, when I read that, I was like, boy, that's like a very neutral way to talk about insecurity. I almost feel like the guy writing this was insecure about writing insecurity. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't want people to judge me. I'm just going to make it as neutral as possible and make it as gray as possible. Um, so I thought more about that. I'm like, you know, if I were to describe an insecurity, what would I really focus on? And I get it. It's, it's an anxiety. It's a lack of confidence. But it's more than just that. I think there is this sense of it's a wound. It's a wound from past failures. It's a wound from self-doubt. It's a wound from what our um, society puts on us, um, how we should view ourselves, how we think we should be. At my age, where should I be at in the span of life? You know, should I be this successful, have this many kids, you know, be driving this vehicle? There's a lot of ways that we can take that and ask ourselves and try to compare ourselves of, you know, where are we at in this grand scheme of success or grand scheme of happiness? You know, or you name it, where are we at on that? And it can really cause us to self-doubt ourselves and to walk with insecurity. A good one to push back is the Olympics, right? These people are at their peak. They are professionals. They're really good at what they do. If I were to try to ice skate, I would fall on my face right away. So when somebody falls at the Olympics, we should understand that they're doing really hard maneuvers. They're doing triple axles that... I think it was this year that one of the ladies, she did that, and I think she was like one of the only three or four people to ever land a triple axel. And she didn't do that during her main performance. And people just bemoaned that. I'm like, I can't believe she didn't do that. It's one of the hardest moves in ice skating. It's like, you're not just going to be able to whip that out and be, you know, every single time. But we look at that and we're like, oh, well, she's not as good as what we think she is. And it's like, you know, maybe you don't know the whole picture. In that. But these are people that should be very confident of themselves. But when we look at it, they are anxious and nervous before, and then they're just distraught afterwards. There's no sign of any security. They are kind of at the whim of, if I do great, it's good. And if I don't, my world is over. And I think in a way, on a smaller sense, we do the same thing to ourselves every day. So we're not alone. I want you guys to know that. Everyone has insecurities. We all struggle with that. Um, some of you might be kind of wondering, well, maybe I don't know my insecurities, which I don't assume would be a lot of us, but there might be some of us in the audience today who are like, ah, I don't have that many insecurities. So the question I would ask then is, what makes you jealous towards someone else? Is it their looks? Is it their success? How many kids they have? How well-behaved their kids are? Whatever you're kind of comparing yourself to and maybe getting upset about or you know, kind of questioning God why you don't have that, that could be a good sign of an insecurity that you have. If I'm insecure about maybe how much my friends, how much money they're making or how successful they are, my insecurity might be that I, I am insecure about my success. I don't see myself as successful, and so I have an insecurity about that. Um, or if you're looking at a friend who you think is much more good-looking than you or whatever that might be, and you're like, oh, I wish I had this, 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 and this, your insecurity might be you know, outward looks. And it can be a full range of things. And I want you guys to realize that too, as I might just cover a couple because they're easy to cover. But insecurities can go on a wide range of different things. And everyone has different insecurities. So you can need to ask yourself that question. And it's always good to figure out what your insecurities are because then that helps you to speak truth towards those insecurities. So now that we've talked a little bit about insecurities, um, and we've hopefully now kind of brushed off a little bit just to get you guys thinking um, we're going to look to the Bible to look at a couple of examples of insecurities and um, how Jesus confronted them and what we can learn from that. So the first passage today, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 10, 35 through 45. If you have a phone or device, you can turn to that as well. 
If you're reading something online, you can turn to the Bible now too. I know that there's always that one person who's like flips over, and I'm guilty of that sometimes too. So <laughs> I hear you. Um, but so Mark 10, 35 through 45, just to give you a little bit of a background before that, um, we're going to read about two disciples, James and John. A little bit more about them is they, are, they were two fishermen before they became disciples of Jesus. Um, so they were pretty common people. They weren't from any high-class society. They weren't great rulers or anything like that. They were very common, um, what we call blue-collar today. Um, they were fishermen. They had adequate means, but they weren't rich. They weren't really illustrious or anything like that. They were just common people. Jesus came to them and said, hey, follow me. And they dropped all their stuff, and they followed Jesus um, in his ministry here on earth. They are the sons of Zebedee, who is their father. So if you read more about them, you might see that come up as sons of Zebedee is what they'll be referred to as, as well as another title called Sons of Thunder. Now, Bible scholars question about why Jesus called them that, and it doesn't appear many times in the Bible, but we take that when Jesus gives someone a title, it means something. He doesn't just randomly give people random titles. There's definitely a reason why God puts that on people um, and so there are some reasons why people might think Jesus gave them the sons of thunder. Reading more into it in the Bible, you realize that they're really quick to anger, and they're really quick to bring um, damnation on people. There is a story later on where the Samaritans, which is a group of people, um, they don't allow Jesus to enter their village. And Jesus is like, all right, we'll just move on. And James and John are like, hey, God, like, why don't we call fire from heaven to obliterate this town? Kind of like, you know, just like, no, we'll, we'll just move on. So they're a little bit extreme in their views in that way. And so we want to make sure that we take this as well into this passage, because it's going to show us once again a little bit about who they are as they act in their own identity. So once again, I'm going to start here in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want, to, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us a sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those of whom it has been prepared." And when the ten heard this, so the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but for whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever be the, whoever be the first among you must be the slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." So now I'm going to go back over what I just read, and we're going to kind of piece it out, because I think there's some really good nuggets that we want to make sure that we go over. And there's a lot in this little passage. I'm not going to, for time's sake, be able to cover all the good truth that's in that. I'm going to stick more with the theme. Um, but if I do go over a verse, it's not because I don't deem that verse important. It's just I want to make sure that we relate it to the message appropriately. So first of all, we see in the first verse that James and John... They come to Jesus, um, and they ask him, and I think this is interesting how they ask. They're like, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Has anyone ever tried that before with anyone else? Hey, before I even ask, I want to know it's a yes. 
right? I feel like this is a kid tactic where it's like, mom and dad, whatever I want for Christmas, you know, you say yes to, right? And that parent knows that I'm not saying yes to that because that's going to be like a $300 gift or something. Um, so, and I know as a kid, that was kind of my thing too. Like I knew I had a range to work with. And so I worked within that range. But it's just weird that James and John, they've been following Jesus. They're really good friends of Jesus. Like they have a good relationship with him. And they kind of come in this way of like, we want to make sure that you'll say yes. Like we're not going to ask it unless we know it's going to be a yes. It's kind of a bad way to ask for something, especially from a friend. Like they know that Jesus loves them. We know that they know that Jesus is going to take care of them. Yet they're almost... They're anxious about, will Jesus really say yes to this? Well, we better make sure that he says yes so that it's kind of like a signed contract where he can't back out on us. It's not a good way to deal with friends or anyone that you love, right? It's a bad way. It'd be a bad way if I did that to my wife where I'm just like, hey, honey, like, don't say no to whatever I say. I want you to do such and such. It puts her in a corner, right? She can't say no because then she doesn't love me. But if she says yes, it might be something that's difficult for her, something she doesn't want to do. Not a good way. That's a one-sided argument. Not a good way to do anything. If you're good at arguing, you realize that that's not a good way to do it. If you're bad at arguing, you realize it's not a good way because it usually blows up in your face, which this kind of will for James and John. And so Jesus asked them, what do you want to do? And James and John asked them that, we want to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Now, when I read that, there's something inside me that I just want to ask, like, how arrogant for James and John to come up to Jesus and be like, hey, Jesus, like, we want to sit at your left and right hand side in your glory. And I see that as arrogance because I see who Jesus is. I know who Jesus is, and I know what they're asking for, right? They want to be second and third to Jesus Christ. I mean, when you put it in that, you're like, wow, these guys are very arrogant. This is a very foolish thing to ask for. But what James and John don't understand is who Jesus really is at this time in history, for them, they see Jesus as he's a guy that's coming in. They think he's going to usurp the Roman Empire, which right now is in control of the area and in control of the Jews. And they see Jesus as a conquering liberator who's going to throw off Roman oppression and bring back the Jewish state and bring back Jewish leadership. So for them, what they're really asking is, hey, Jesus, you know, when you get to power, we want to make sure that we're also in power with you. So what's their insecurity? I say their insecurity is that they don't deem that they have significance. They don't deem that they're very powerful. You know, remember, they're fishermen. They're common lay people. There's really nothing glamorous about their life. And does that really matter? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how successful you are or what title you have. But for them, it's important. And they want to make sure that they get to it first. And we see um, that when the disciples hear about this later, they're going to be upset. And they're not going to be upset because, once again, this question is not something that you should ask Jesus, but it's more or less because they're like, I didn't ask for this first. Like, James and John beat me to it. Like, oh, man, they're upset with James and John in that way because they got to that question first. Now, the Bible doesn't really say much about what happens after this conversation in between the 12, but I can assure you that there was probably some anger towards James and John. Um, there was definitely some hurt relationships between James and John. Um, so when you think about it that way, it definitely probably caused some you know, schisms in that relationship that had to be worked out. Because once again, these group of 12 traveled together, lived together, ate together for more than three years. So they were a really close, tight-knit group. So for this to kind of happen, it was probably something that definitely had to be healed. There was definitely probably some wounds there, some anger, some bitterness towards that as well. 
But we look at and Jesus says, you know, Jesus kind of takes that, you know, very haughty, ignorant, arrogant question and that request, and he just kind of turns it back and asks them, like, well, are you able? Because Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus has been telling the disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Like, this is the end for me, is that when I die, that's when my kingdom comes. Like, my whole point to live is to die. And so James and John, in a way, too, are kind of asking Jesus, hey, when you're out of the picture, we want to be next in line to take over. Once again, there is that, that arrogance of, like, do they really care about what Jesus is doing? Like, do they really care about Jesus as a person? Or are they more worried about, you know, where I'm at in the totem pole? And I want to make sure that I'm next in line for that leadership. So then Jesus turns this, and he says that, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus, in a way, is already kind of talking to James and John of, I know why you're asking this. You want to be just like the Gentile rulers. You want to be like the kings, and you want to be like those who are above you have authority over you. Because we all like that authority, right? We all like to have that power. We like to hoard that over. And that's usually what happens is with great power comes you know, great responsibility, that Spider-Man quote that's used way too much in greeting cards. Um, but it's one of those things where we feel like we look at the history of the world, we can look at now, and we can see that with great power, there is this great desire to use it in wrong ways and to kind of, you know, hoard it over people or commend it over people. And that's what Jesus is saying, too, is that the Gentiles are doing this now, and you want to shake that oppression off, but you got to realize that we all struggle with hoarding that over. And so Jesus instead says, if you want to be great, here's how you be great. Um, and it's one of the greatest ways of being a leader and one of the greatest foundations that a leader should build themselves on is that, you know, uh, who, whosoever wants to, um, it's here, but whoever would be great among you, you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Jesus is saying that if you want to be a good ruler, if you want to be a good leader, you are a slave and you are a servant to your people that you rule over. It completely flips it. Whereas as a ruler, it's not just, it's me, whatever I say, that's the law of the land. It's like, no, 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 you are the last in line. If you're going to be a great ruler, if you're going to be a great servant, you're last. It totally flips that insecurity. Because for us, a lot of the times, we want security because we want power. We want to know that we're significant. We want to have leadership. We want to have control all these can be seen within leadership. And we see what James and John are requesting could be a number of these things. And Jesus is saying, he flips it, saying that, you know, no, you are a servant and a slave to be a good leader. It flips it because we would almost say that that's almost an insecurity. To be a servant or a slave, to have no power, no significance, that's an insecurity that I think a lot of us would struggle with, saying that I don't feel significant in my life. I don't feel like I have any control in my life. I don't feel like I have any power or reign in my household, in my job, wherever that might be. And Jesus is saying that doesn't matter. Like the greatest leaders come from that stock, from that line. So we see that within that request, there, become, there comes these negative side effects. The disciples are angry. Um, James and John are going to have to work that out. But we see that Jesus doesn't, you know, he doesn't chastise them. He doesn't, he doesn't tell them that their answer is arrogant. He works with them on that. And we'll see that pattern follow as we go to the next passage here, which will be found in John 4. 4 through 18. Now, a little bit of background on this is that um, it's a different book of the Bible, but it is following Jesus' mission um, and ministry in the nation of Israel and the surrounding countries within that. And this next passage is he's going to be going through a country called Samaria. Now, if you know your Bible history or ancient history, 
um, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. So the Jews saw themselves as the pure blood of the Jewish culture and the Jewish people. Um, and the Samaritans were what they would call a mixed race or a mixed blood. Samaritans came from the stock that in the Old Testament, when the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdoms of um, the Israelites, the Assyrians, what they would do is um, to kind of just break and try to disunify the people. They would take people out of their country and move them to other places in Assyria or into Assyrian territory. And then they would leave some people. Usually they'd leave the people who were the least likely to uprise. And they would just keep them there. They'd bring all the people who had maybe education or important skills and bring them back into their kingdoms and then kind of plant them around there. And then that way it would disunify the people so that they wouldn't rebel and uprise with that. So the Samaritans then were from this stock of people who were either left behind, who were brought into Assyria, and then had mixed blood. So the Jews didn't like them because they were mixed with the Gentiles. Um, they also didn't like them because there were some things that the Samaritans believed that the Jews would disregard and say that that wasn't correct. They both followed Yahweh to some degree, um, but both of them had different places where that should be, where a place of worship should be. The Samaritans had one mountain, and the Jews had another mountain. And you know, the other one was right, and the other one was incorrect. And so they go back and forth on their theology as well. And so they didn't get along. They hated each other. For a normal Jewish person to travel, you would skip Samaria. You wouldn't go through Samaria. You would actually take a longer route to make sure that you would not go into Samaria. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. It'd be like if you are a Minnesotan and you need to get to Michigan, you would not drive through Wisconsin because we all know that Wisconsin is a bad place, right? So you would drive around Wisconsin to get to Michigan or to wherever you would want to go with that. I know it sounds silly, but that's exactly what the Jews did back in the Bible times. And it's interesting too, because you didn't have a car back then. You'd have to walk. So they purposely made their walk longer just so they could avoid interacting, seeing, or even going through Samaria. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. And so with that context, we'll open up into the passage. Oh, one other thing too to note. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. He chose to go through Samaria. He purposely was like, we're going to go through Samaria, and we'll see why. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What, have you, what you have said is true. So to continue on the story in the short sum is that she hears Jesus say this, and she's like, You must be a prophet because I did not tell you that, and you're right. 
And Jesus will go on to explain to her what this living water source is. And I'm going to go into that in just a minute. But what I first want to do is backtrack a little bit into the verses and talk about what we're seeing from this woman here. First of all, some of the insecurity that she has, it's, very, it's spoken very clearly in the Bible, is that she's a Samaritan. So there's a racial insecurity there that she does not, see, she does not deem herself better or other people do not deem herself as better because of who she is as a person in the sense of her genetic makeup. She's not the right person, you would say, in the genetic makeup to the Jews. And so she's less than. She's lower class. She's also um, struggling because she is a woman. We see that in the Bible, too, that when she talks to Jesus, you know, how is it that you a Jew? So she brings that up first, that there is definitely this divide between Jew and Samaritan. But then at the same time, there's another divide because she says, me, a woman of of Samaria. And back in the day, within that Bible times, women and men were not equal. And women were the lesser um, of the two genders with that. So there is a gender insecurity. And, you know, back in that time, and even to this day, to some degree, men still kind of lord that over women. And, over, you know, power have that over women and that authority over women as well. Um, so she has an insecurity as well. She is a woman. She is a Samaritan with that. But we also see, too, that she comes at a time when no one else is around the well. And there is some differing arguments at what time she actually came to the well. So I'm not going to really use that. I don't feel comfortable with saying that she came at noon or she came early afternoon or she came maybe at 6 p.m. Those are kind of the things that go around. But what we can see from this is she comes at a time when there's no one around at the well, which is odd because at this time, um, it was a woman's duty back in Bible times to go gather water. And so this was the time that women could kind of get together, talk about, you know, the weekly events, the daily events, gossip a little bit, and have some time just as women. Um, So it was kind of one of their things that they looked forward to throughout the day. This was their time to kind of unwind, be a woman, talk to other women, and have this sense of being social. Because at the time, too, a woman in a household of men was usually hidden, kind of put away. You come out and do your stuff, and then you disappear. So women loved this time because for them, they were able to be themselves, talk, about, talk to other people, and you know, talk about the weekly events. So she comes at a time when there's no one here, which would be odd. She's almost avoiding people. And I would say that she is avoiding people. And they ask yourselves, why is she avoiding people? Well, she's avoiding people because Jesus talks about her history. And it doesn't look like it's a really good history. And I really don't want to um, dish upon anything of... Her past, we all have our past, we all have our problems, we all have um, the things that we struggle with. So I'm not up here going to say that, oh, well, she's this and this is not good. Um, but what it is, is honestly, there must be some wounds in her life for her to have five husbands and now another man living with her. There's obviously something going on. That just doesn't normally happen um, within that. We don't know her whole story. The Bible is not clear about you know, the whole event of her life within that. But what we can kind of gather from that is that something must be going on for her to have that many men within her life in that. Um, And we see that Jesus doesn't call her out for that in the sense of he doesn't say shame on you. He doesn't condemn her. He just points out the facts that, you know, hey, I know that this is this, and, you know, this is where you're at right now. And he talks about more about himself and how she can have living water. He doesn't really emphasize her sins, right? He doesn't stay on her sins and be like, oh, you're a terrible person. You're an awful person. He's like, hey, I know where you're at, here's where you could be, and here's what I want to talk about. And that's the great thing is that that is how Christ views all of us, is that Christ doesn't dwell upon our insecurities. Christ is not looking at, well, you're a Samaritan, you're also a woman, you've also lived with a lot of men, 
which within that custom too, living with men and marrying a lot of men was a really big no-no. Um, as a woman back in that time to have that many, you were probably outcasted from society. And we see that this is also maybe apparent of why she's coming by herself is because maybe the other women won't even speak to her. Maybe she's tried to come to the well before when other women are around and no one talks to her or they avoid her or they shun her. So she's like, it's just better for me to come by myself. And we see that there's this eagerness when she doesn't really understand what living water is. She wants it because then she doesn't have to go to the well. She wants the living water because then she doesn't have to really even worry about ever getting a drink ever again. She probably sees that that's great because I'll never have to you know, run into people in town ever again. I never have to worry about people gossiping about me at the well ever again. I'll never have to worry about that. We see those insecurities just bubbling up in this conversation that she has with Jesus. And we see that within that, Jesus is really precise about talking about, you know, he doesn't focus on her insecurities or where she's at in the past, but he focuses on who she is and what she can be in Christ and how she can obtain that and through this living water. And it's really interesting how the Bible puts this because right before this, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. Um, For people who know their Bible well, that might be a name that you understand. Um, for those who don't maybe know the story, Nicodemus was a, um, he was a prophet, or not a prophet, but he was a Pharisee, and he was a really high-ended Pharisee. So people looked up to him. He was a man of power. He was a man of education. He was a man of substance. You know, he was a pretty big name back in that time. And he goes to Jesus, and he asks him kind of the same questions of like, you know, what you're saying about this being born again and living water and that you're new, what does that mean? And now we see that Jesus is kind of having that same conversation, but to this lowly Samaritan woman. I think it's great how the Bible puts it because it shows that this is a truth for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're educated. doesn't matter if you're not educated. doesn't matter if you're a Jew. doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. This is something for everyone. So within that, we see the insecurities. We see two parts in the Bible that show that this is something that even in, back in the day, that's just something that people struggle with. We still struggle with it today. Um, and I want to note to this is that in a way, our insecurities show that we are more than just animals. I know within our culture and how we kind of talk about things, there's a really big prevalence on evolution and that we're nothing but highly advanced animals going about our day, Right? Well, I would say that our insecurities is a really good truth to show that there must be more to life than just that. Because if you think about it, securities really are kind of a weakness, if you would say. Insecurities are a weakness. I don't think a squirrel goes about its day wondering if it's the most beautiful squirrel in the area, right? A squirrel's not going to matter how successful they are. The only success rate that you have is, are you alive? Good. That's your success rate. You know, I don't think a squirrel matters how many babies it has or how great their children are or how well-behaved their children are. They're just trying to procreate as many children as they can because if they don't, their species dies out. So as humans, if we're nothing but highly advanced animals, why do we worry about, you know, how beautiful I am or how successful I am? You know, how significant I am? I don't think a squirrel ever considers how significant they are in the world. So we think about this. These things are pointed to something much deeper within ourselves than just this animalistic sense of, you know, sleeping, eating, procreating, and that's it. There's something more, and it points to that. And so we have some truths that we can read in the Bible that is pointing to that we are more than just animals. We are actually, you know, highly valued by God because we're not just animals. We're his people. We're his children. He loves us. And I have a couple of verses here to give you that, um, to kind of give you some of that truth. 
The first one is found in Genesis um, 1, 26 through 27. And then we have John 3.16, and we have Psalm 139.13. And I have them listed over here. For the sake of time, I'm only going to choose one of them to go through because we'll be here a lot longer if I go through all of them. Um, but the one I'm going to do is Psalm 139.13. And that says, For you are formed, you, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And this is a psalm that we find um, in the book of Psalms, written by David. And he's expressing his love for God and how much God loves him. And he uses this analogy of knitting together in my mother's womb. There's this great sense of just closeness and great sense of God being in that moment and working on that. I've never knitted anything in my life. Um, But I can tell you from what I've seen from other people do it, it's a hard task and it takes time. Um, Just as Christmas, uh, Amy's brother had knitted his girlfriend uh, a set of mittens, and they weren't like just a bad set. Like they were a really nice set of mittens that you'd pay like 40 bucks for like in a a, a millennial shop or hipster shop, right? So it was pretty impressive. And then the thing was, is I think he made two left hands or something, and she noted that. And it was like, and for me, I'm like, man, if I did it to my wife, I'd be like, wow, too bad. We'll buy you mittens. I'm not doing it again. But he like untook the whole thing and started from scratch and redid it so that it was right. And like it took him like, what, like eight, 10 hours to do that? And like he was just like sitting there, just, you know, taking his time and doing that. And I just, for me, I'm like, Amy, better not keep me getting any ideas because I'm not knitting her mittens. Like this is, just seems insane. So it's a, it's a complicated task. It's a hard task to do. But David used that to show that there's just, this great sense of love and closeness that God is very interested in you to the point that even in your first moments of development, God is there, God is present, and God is watching over you in that. Like For me, when I read that verse, that's one of the most profound ways to say and express that God loves you, is that he's there in the moments as you're being formed and as your cells are dividing and as you are growing you know, as this little zygote into a baby, like, it's just amazing that God is present in that, and he enjoys that, and he loves that. It also shows that he knows each and every one of us at the very earliest moments of our development. He's there. He knows us by name. Like, he loves us. That closeness is there. So with that, these are some of the verses that are used, but I know that as I was reading these verses, one thing that I was kind of having problems with is that a lot of people are saying that, you know, all people are considered children of God, right? We're all, if we're all created by God, we're all children of God to some degree. And John 3.16 puts that well, where God so loves the world, right? He loves everyone. There's no one within that body that can be separated and say, well, God doesn't love me, or God doesn't, you know, know me. That's not true. Everyone loves God. But one thing I was noticing with some of these verses Um, and some of the ways that other pastors were using these verses to kind of argue the point that we're all loved by God, which is true. I want to say that that's true. We are all children of God, but I think there's one thing that's being missed out of that that's, I think, a really important thing, and that's to talk a little bit about sin. Um, And I don't want to be the guy that's always coming up here and being like, hey, like sin, ah, we all struggle with sin. Um, But I, I I want us to remind you of that because that is something that is apparent in our life. Um, and it's, in a way, if you can think of it this way, I was trying to think of a good analogy, and I thought, I think this is a good one. We'll see. It's like when you go to Target or Walmart, and you buy one of those plastic storage totes, right? Has anyone ever bought one of those and not bought the lid or got the lid with it? Because everyone got home and be like, oh, no, I don't have a lid. The storage tote is useless without that lid, right? Because you can stuff stuff in it and stack it, but it's not going to stack well. 
And I love how whenever you go to the store, there's like little signs all over there that say, don't forget the lid. Don't forget the lid. Like, did you make sure you got the lid? It's like, yes, I got the lid. I actually got two. Like, you know, someday they stick together and you grab it just in case. Never done that before. <laughs> but it is. I feel like I've never forgotten the lid, but I feel like there are times where either I find a tote and I don't have the lid either. That's a problem. I need the lid. If I don't have the lid, I don't have the whole package, right? You need the whole package to make it work well. So even though we're considered valuable and cherished by God, um, in creation itself, and we see that sin separates us from God. It causes our anxiety and insecurities because we have been separated from our true identity. The nine hole in our soul is evidence that we are missing something. That something is Jesus. See, I think our world and our culture would be fine with saying that, hey, yeah, we're all children of God. Hey, we're all his creation. Hey, you know what? God created me. I'm fine with that. And to some degree, maybe not, but I think most people are okay with that of like, yeah, okay, we're all children to God, we're all loved. That's an easy message to proclaim to people. The hard message, though, is to say, hey, by the way, though, you're separated by sin, and you got to fix that problem to really get your true identity. And that's where people will argue, because there are people who would argue that Jesus isn't the way, and that Jesus isn't the source of true happiness or true life. There'd be people that would argue that, but the Bible is very clear that that's the issue at hand. And we see that even in the two verses that we are the two passages I brought up today. John 4, 25 through 26 said, the woman said to him, the Samaritan woman, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then John 10, 45, when he's talking to James and John say, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to, be, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even within these two passages, as he's talking about this, Jesus always ends that as well with saying, hey, I am what you're looking for. You know, I could come today and I could give you a nice story of how, hey, don't let your insecurities drag you down. Don't let your insecurities, you know, make you walk through life thinking that you're not that great. Because guess what? You are great. And you're all awesome people. And you're all beautiful people. Like, I could be Oprah and just be like, hey, everyone's great. We're all great. We're all great, right? You're a beautiful person. You're a beautiful person. You're a talented person. Like, and I could make all of you guys walk out of these doors feeling really good about yourself, right? But I would be doing a disservice to you. I'd be giving you a tote without a lid because you don't have the whole truth. If I don't give you the last part of it saying that you are a wonderful person, you are a beautiful person, you are a talented person, and it's because of Christ. If I miss that little bit, I miss the whole thing. I completely miss the picture. The same way as with the Olympic skater, that for me, I could do a really good job, but if I fall on my last jump, doesn't matter how good I did, I bombed it, right? That's going to break my score. In the same way, this will break my score too if I don't share the love of Jesus for you. So some verses I have with that, um, and we call these the greatest truth. So I said, like, you know, I, I made the first ones. I titled that, uh, let me see here. I titled it a good truth, right? We're all children of God by creation, all people. But the greater truth is that children of redemption, children by redemption, were Christians. And I give some verses here for you as well that you can look up if you want to write down. The one that I'm going to focus on here is Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. These verses are 
impactful because they let us know that you're not only children of God, you're heirs of God. And an heir basically means that whatever your parents have, you get too. And normally you think about it like, you know, you're working hard, you're making a lot of money, and then when you kick the bucket, right, your kids are going to probably get a kickbacks of your wealth that you have, if you have any left over, um, after you go. Your children really didn't do anything for that, right? They didn't do the job, they didn't do the hours, but they're going to get some benefit out of that. And this is in the same way that Jesus did all the work. He died on the cross for us. He saved us from our sins. He paid the price for, you know, something that we could never pay for. And what's great about this is that we also get that. Christ was glorified for, what that, for that selfless task, right? He's the, he's the leader that became a slave to all. We get that same thing that Christ has done. That is now given to us because we're heirs in Christ. We're sons and daughters. We're also benefactors of that. It's a huge message that I think a lot of people will miss if they just say, hey, we're all children of God by creation. We miss that as, you know, if you're a Christian, you get more, you get the lid on that. And what's beneficial for this as well is that with our sin issue, when we become Christians, we have that sin issue. It doesn't go away. As a human, we still struggle with sin. We're still going to have to fight a daily fight against sin. But we get this sense of that hole is filled, that nine hole in our heart of, am I good enough? Am I loved enough? You know, am I significant? Am I important? All those things are filled within Christ. Christ says, yes, you are. I love you. You are significant. Every single one of you. Because remember, I knitted you together in your mother's womb. I was there the day that your cells divided and you became life. I love you. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to save you. And I'm going to be your savior. And to the point where you can call me daddy. Right? Abba, father. It's a term that is very personal. It basically means daddy, right? You get to call the God of the universe dad, daddy. Like that's a big thing, that closeness of a relationship is there within that. And if you miss that, you miss a huge chunk of the story. And I'd say the most important part of that. So all these above things can bring healing or strength to our relationships with people. When we help them see their worth in Christ, we will help fill a longing in their hearts for Christ that can only be healed and filled, and filled by him. Right, if we're struggling, it's this whole emphasis of your overflowing well. If we if we have a hole in our heart and we're struggling, it's going to be really hard for us to bring that truth to others. But when we have that filled and we can overflow into others, hopefully people can see a difference in our lives that says, "Man, their life's not perfect. They got a lot of things going on in their life that would make me upset." But there's a sense of peace or hope or joy or whatever that might be that they have, and I have no idea why they have that. That is your well overflowing to people who question, what do they have that I don't? And the answer is Jesus, right? It's Jesus. They have the bottom tote. Give them the lid. Give them the whole package. Help them to see Jesus. So to end in this, I want to bring it back to John. So John, who we later met, so he was called, remember, Sons of Thunder, right? So John would go on to live his life. He would go on after Jesus um, ascended back into heaven, after he rose again, John would go on to preach the good word to the kind of the world at the time, the Middle East and into that area. Um, and he would write some more books in the Bible that were named after him, as well as a couple other books that were not named after him. Um, but we see that in one of his books, kind of towards the end of his life, he gives, him, he gives himself another title. He has another title. And that title is Apostle of Love. So he went from Son of Thunder to Apostle of Love. And that's the great thing that I want to share with you as well, is that when you receive Jesus, you get a name change, right? 
things change for you. You're not, you're not known by your past. You're given this new name. And it's great to see that John uses that to share the love of God with others because he knows that love. He wants to share it with others. So in closing, I want to encourage you that we all have our insecurities, right? We've talked about that. Um, it's important that we note those insecurities, but now let God bring truth and light to those insecurities. If an insecurity says that you're not beautiful, know that God says that, no, you are beautiful. If an insecurity tells you that you're not significant, know that God says, no, you are significant. You know, if you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm successful. I don't know if I'm a good parent. I don't know, you know, fill in the blank, whatever that is. Jesus is always there to say, no. And you can always point yourself back to the Bible and say that, no, God truly does love me in the sense that a dad loves their children. And if you have things in your past that bring that an issue where that's a, that's a hard thing for you to see, just know that God is the ultimate parent figure. God is blameless. God is pure. God is everything that a parent should be and more, and that he greatly loves you in that. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today is a good day. Today is a good day. It's not hard to do. It, but, it is, but it's not hard to get that journey started, right? I always, I always hate saying it's not hard to do because the life of a Christian is not easy either. Um, but it's, it's an easy thing to accept, receive, and get started in. It's acknowledging that you're a sinner, acknowledging that you need Jesus, and then accepting him into your life. And I would be more than happy to walk you through that process. I know that Pastor Rob would be more than happy to walk you through that process. We have a prayer corner in the um, back here that they would be happy to walk you through that process. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, or even if you have questions, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. You know, bring those. We would love. It doesn't have to even be us that I've just mentioned. It could be anyone in this church. We would love to talk to you and share with you that good news. So in closing, once again, remind yourself that you are well-loved, that all your insecurities are covered in Jesus' love, and that, in a sense, we don't have to be insecure. We are completely secured in Christ who loves us and will always loves us and will never end up loving us. So in closing, I would like to listen. Um, I'd like all of you guys now to listen to a song that we're going to put up here. Um, it's Remind Me of Who I Am by Jason Gray. Um, the, the song reminds us that no matter where we've been or what we've done or who we may think we are, God says that we are his beloved, and that video will serve to remind us of that same truth to every person on earth, that they are his beloved just as much as we are, no matter who they are or where you've been. Um, and so we ask that you would just sit and meditate on this, allow these truths to soak into your heart, um, because these truths are so easy to forget. Life can just be a battle. Life can just be so difficult. So, and we tend to forget. It tends to muddy those waters, right? So just take some time to really just soak this in and listen to the words and let these um, words speak truth and peace into your heart.